Hello, and welcome to the Pastor Talk podcast. We are kicking off with our first full week of scripture reading this week, and the previous episode was a little bit of a preface to the 90-day New Testament challenge, and if you want more information about what kind of Bible you might want to have as we read the New Testament together, or you're interested in things like what you can do with children or where discussion groups will be had, um, go ahead and pause this. Uh, go back one week or one episode, uh, check out what happened there, and there's a whole bunch of links uh, in that description for you. But today we kick off with our reading for the first week, and that is in the book of Matthew. Well, I'll, I've got to admit to you, uh, we start with Matthew here, and one should not rate the Gospels by one's preference. <laughs> but if I was going to do that and be honest, I would, Matthew would, would, be my fourth favorite gospel. It's it's my least favorite gospel. And one of the reasons for that is because it has always felt to me like Jesus is the most confrontational in this gospel. And you may disagree with that, but he's especially hard on the Pharisees and Sadducees. And that certainly stuck out to me again in this reading, though I've got to say reading in a larger chunk has actually put that a little bit in context for me. And I, I think what I mean by that is looking backwards and thinking of Matthew as being an, an apologetic or an argument for Jesus being the best, the fulfillment, the, the, the one who not only knows the law, but fulfills the law, frames that very differently. Yeah, I think those conflicts take on a different meaning when you understand that for Matthew, that's the biggest threat to the growth of Christianity is people who want to go back to the old way and who don't acknowledge or cannot understand that the fulfillment has come. They want to stay in the old pattern instead of embrace the new thing that God has done. And, and you're right, Jesus is hard on those people in the Gospel of Matthew, but I think Matthew is hard on them also. Well, and, and some of the point there I do think is connected. Interestingly, I, I never noticed in readings before how often, especially early in the book, the word secret gets used. It's used um, a lot, actually, in the birth narrative where Jesus uh, is being uh, born. And in the midst of that process, uh, Joseph is come to in secret. Uh, the wise men are talked to in secret. Uh, the, the, all, all of this is done in secret. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about when you're going to be fasting. Do, make yourself look like you're not fasting so that in the secret of your heart, I don't think it actually uses the word secret, but in that, that idea of in your heart, you will be doing the spiritual practice instead of that being publicly seen. And what's fascinating about that in this reading, it just hit me that Jesus is not only the one who fulfills the law, but he's the public representation, the, the visible fulfillment of the law. So in that way, Jesus is authentic. Jesus is the law in the way it was intended to be, which would be a very interesting thing if you were a Jew and you were interested in upholding the law, really. Yeah, and I think in these first 20 chapters, you'll see several incidents where the, fad, the Pharisees, the Sadducees argue with Jesus about the law, or they ask him, in fact, often the disciples are asked, why don't you guys 
wash your hands? Why do you eat this way? Why do you do that? Don't you care about the law? And the answer is pretty much always the same. Things have fundamentally changed. Right. You don't understand the law. And and to your point, I think Jesus is very hard on Matt in Matthew. Jesus is very hard on people who do things in order to be seen, who believe that their faith is a pathway to prestige or to notoriety or to public attention. And Jesus comes down hard on them. The other gospels as well, but I think it's right. sharpest in Matthew. I think one of the reasons why this particular aspect of the gospel has always been grating to me is if I'm going to be honest, I share some of the Pharisees and Sadducees sentiments <laughs> is the honest truth is that, well, we have the law, we have the ways that we, we've been taught to, to uphold and come on, Jesus, give them a break. They're just, you know, maybe they don't have it all right, but they're, they're doing their best. And I think maybe some of Jesus's critique is difficult for me just in that that's maybe my bent in the first place. So maybe that's why it hits me there. Yeah. One of the things I noticed this time, it may be related to your comments. I'm struck by the fact that in Matthew, there are really just two reactions to Jesus. The people are either amazed and astounded or they're offended. Mm -hmm. And part of that is who the crowd is. But it's interesting to think that that's the two primary ways that we experience Christ either in amazement and humility or in arrogance and being offended. And Jesus has some very hard things to say to those who believe themselves to be above him. And I, and I do think that's what well, John is pretty sharp. Matthew's, Matthew's hard on those people. I, and once again, knowing context, like you shared at the beginning, does matter because... Matthew, while it is evangelistic in that it is reaching out to share the gospel of Christ with people, it is to people of faith and to people who have thought of themselves for their entire lives as being the chosen. The the Jewish people would have received this book with the assumption that that they have not only the law and commandments, but they have had God's favor and God's presence. And so the strong comments about the law being fulfilled in Christ and that changing all of your expectations, this is in some ways directly connected to that context. It's it's because of who it's written to. Yeah. And again, I think we see my, Matthew's bias there in that constant appeal to the scriptures. This was prophesied, but now it has happened. It has been fulfilled. Why is Jesus born in Bethlehem? Because the scripture said that he would be. Why do things happen the way they do in his birth narrative? Mm-hmm. Because that's exactly what the Old Testament said would happen. And and this idea that what was predicted has now come to pass and people don't recognize it. That people aren't able to see it. That they're blind to it. You know, the crowds get it because they're looking at the healings and they're seeing him teach as one with authority. And there's this sense in which they have only to gain, they have nothing to lose. But those who have some clout, those who have some power, they're afraid of Jesus. 
and they're looking for opportunities to trip him up. And again, this is not unique to Matthew, but I do think it's perhaps the thread is most clearly woven throughout Matthew's gospel, I think. I think that's fair. Do you, would you? Is it fair to say that th- that word authority does have a thread throughout the gospel? It stuck out to me this time, that idea that Jesus is not only one who knows, but one who embodies, one who actually has the authority, which constantly is surprising people. Yeah, I think I might even go so far as to say, other than the very strong and and cosmic statement of John, I think the introduction to Matthew might make that that point stronger than either of the other two Gospels. Mm -hmm. That Jesus is incarnate, that he is the covenant in human form, that he is the fullness of of what God wants people to do and to be. And it, and Matthew gives us some subtle hints of that. He, he puts it in terms of this word greater. Mm-hmm. There's no greater prophet. He's greater than the temple, greater than Solomon. There is this sort of superiority that Matthew attributes to Jesus that clearly supersedes even the height of the old covenant. Which, if you're receiving that, that's a complete transformation of expectation, right? If you look, if you look at the Old Testament prophets, Moses, Abraham, you think of these people who are the fathers of the Old Testament, rather not prophets. If you think of those, Jesus is being purposely cast as greater than. And, and that's an amazing challenge. In fact, in my reading this time, noticing the fact that Jesus goes to Egypt when he's uh, being hunted by Herod is an amazing connection to Moses and that idea of coming through the water. And, and even the Son of God fulfills and rises above those places of the Old Testament. Yeah, and one of the striking differences is that each of those patriarchs play their role in the story at a highlight of Israel's time. Mm-hmm. They're kings, they're prophets, they de- Moses delivers, David rules. Jesus comes and announces this reign of God, this new kingdom, this new life, the fulfillment of the promise. At a time when Israel is occupied, they have no political power, they're trying to hang on to their religious life in the midst of paganism, which now lives right in their, their backyard. And it's a very different context in which they are confronted with the idea that Jesus could be the Messiah. And that's exactly, ironically, the reason why the Pharisees and Sadducees make so much sense, right? When paganism is in your back door, when when your neighbors are struggling with choices over who to worship, the idea of clear lines and clear boundaries, do this, don't do this, I mean, that's a compelling idea, except when Jesus shows up and changes all of those expectations overnight. Yeah, it seems to me, is it overstated to say that the difference is that they tend to apply the lines toward people 
And Jesus tends to apply the lines toward our own hearts. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Jesus raises the bar throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard, but I say to you. And each and every time that he does that, he takes a challenging rule or uh, code and makes it even more challenging. And yet he's also greater. He's also the one who fulfills that greater and more challenging command. And so once again, we're pointed to a Jesus who is higher. He has more authority. He, he's more authentically the law than the law itself actually is. Yeah. And those must have been difficult things to hear for a people who looked as if their best days were in the past. Mm. And yet Jesus said, what is now present is beyond what was behind you. What, what is happening now is superior to anything in your memory, in your communal memory. There is something greater among you. And, and I think Matthew just presents that in a really helpful way, really a beautiful way. There's some challenging things in Matthew. Uh, struck by, in some of Jesus' rebuke, there's some, unco- I had some uncomfortable moments reading. Well, what do you think about that? Is, is Matthew more uncomfortable than some of the other Gospels or just uncomfortable in his own way? Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think that I think two things, Michael. One, that's also Matthew's Jewishness. Uh, the Jewish people were very moral, very ethical, the laws, the rules, the commandments, and very serious about what happens when you transgress. And so when Jesus speaks harshly about divorce or not forgiving, not loving, not doing what is ethically required of us as his followers, part of that, I think, is Matthew's tradition. And I also think it's Matthew's way of pointing out to a church probably facing persecution that following Jesus is not an insignificant endeavor, that that this is something to which a person needs to be all in, that Jesus asks no more than complete discipleship, complete allegiance, and that it fundamentally changes everything about a person's life. Yeah, it, Matthew... Matthew will make you squirm for sure. A thing that you may not notice in Matthew, just in a cursory reading, but is fascinating, is the importance of when Jesus goes up, the idea of Jesus going up on top of the mountain. And it's it's interesting how Jesus is tried and taken by Satan to the top of the temple and told, throw yourself down from here and God will protect you. And it's immediately after that that Jesus rises up on top of the mountain and there he gives the Sermon on the Mount, which is not recorded in in that way in any other gospel and contains some of the most memorable teachings of Jesus. Yeah, and then later we'll go up on the mountain for the transfiguration and come down and be frustrated when he encounters lack of faith. Uh, There is some... There is some verticality to Matthew that's interesting. And, and this is not 
good interpretation, but there there is some of that even in in church, right? The idea of that mountaintop experience. We have that with youth all the time. We go on a mission trip. We have a mountaintop experience. Things are uh, clear and and it seems to make sense. And then kids get home and the complexities of life and schedules and trying to sort things out. You know, that's not exactly what's happening in the story. But I think looking at it, I've, I've even seen that lived out in, in the church family. Yeah, I don't think our readers will get there till about day seven or eight. But there is that phrase where Peter on top of the mountain at the transfiguration says, let me build some booths. In other words, we can just stay here. This is awesome. We've got glory. We've got praise. We've got truth. We've got nothing to distract us. And who wouldn't want to hang out there? And it's always been interesting that the next thing in the story is said by God that says, look, just listen to Jesus and do what he tells you. Uh, because we at the, we would very much like to camp out at those mountaintop experiences. Yes, and we would also like to control it, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I, that That's a thing that's woven throughout Matthew that I, I don't think we should miss because there are challenging pieces, but there's not language about do not worry in the other Gospels like there is in Matthew. In Matthew, Jesus makes it clear, trust God and God's going to take care of you. God, God is with you and, and God is greater than every problem that, that you have. So if we're willing to let go of the clear lines that we've made or that we've inherited or, or that we've protected and we have the humility to let Christ redefine the law, to come down off of the mountain, allow Christ to, to go with us, that changes everything. Though Matthew it does remind us that the disciples were told you can't bring a whole bunch of stuff when you go out. You can't, you can't bring a whole bunch of money. You have to trust that God's going to take care of you when you go do his work. Yeah, I think Matthew will just keep asking us the question over and over again. Who is Jesus and what does it mean that he is that, that he is the Messiah? How do we live knowing the truth of what God has done in Jesus. What, how are our morals, our ethics, our practices? How is the way that we treat people? You know, there's that wonderful line in the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, you love people who love you. Everybody does. Love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Go the second mile. Turn the other cheek. That's the stuff that I think Matthew wants us to to know about what it means to follow Jesus. I'm curious, Clint, in a culture that doesn't exactly mirror the Jewish ethic that you were talking about earlier, the idea of that there is right, there is wrong, the line is here, do not cross it from our relationships with each other to our actions in private to even what we eat. How does this then interface with our culture? How, how does a person in our time and place reading this, how does, how does this book speak differently to us because of that difference? Or is there not a difference even? I think there is. I, I think of that line very early in the Sermon on the Mount, fifth or sixth chapter, where Jesus says, let your good works shine before men. And 
we are often uncomfortable with the idea that we're trying to be seen. In fact, Jesus is uncomfortable with it, condemns it just a few passages later. But fundamentally, there is that idea in Matthew that following Jesus is apparent, that it is obvious, that the way that we live should point to a reality beyond the culture, even, I would argue, beyond our religion, that it points to a person, that it points to a covenant, that it points to the work of God in the world, and that what we say and do confirms that in our life. You know, there's that other part that's related to that. Jesus is warning the the disciples about false prophets. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know them by their fruit. Right. You, you'll, you'll, you'll spot them. You'll see them. It It's evident by the way they live, by what they do, by how they speak, by whether they love others or not. You, you pay attention. You can see it. And I think that's a wonderful challenge to the church. Um, yes, I may know I'm Christian. My family may know that I'm Christian. Does my neighbor do my coworkers? Does my life apparent in a way that says something of following Jesus? Again, I think Matthew is wonderfully um, equipped to challenge us in those areas. And that ties together a few threads, Clint. That's really interesting how you say that, because as I was reading the language of the prophets, and particularly that section that you're mentioning, if I remember it right, it jumped out to me the idea that Jesus said, almost as a preface, that other people will do miracles or they will make prophecies. It's not a question of whether other people will do that. It's a question of whether or not they were with Jesus, whether whether they submitted to the one who is greater. And that goes back to this idea of authenticity of of being in secret what we claim to be on the outside. Because the thing that Jesus repeatedly turns against the Pharisees and Sadducees is not their lack of knowledge, but their lack of being formed by that knowledge. It's, It's not just that he's saying you don't understand. He's actually saying you don't embody the thing that you talk about believing. And when we encounter that Jesus in the text, it it should reflect in our lives. If we come to worship and we say the Apostles' Creed and we and we go through what our practice of worship, but we never become refashioned or reformed more and more into the image of Christ, then we too are fitting right in the crosshairs of what Jesus is saying to those who he calls false prophets. Yeah, and I I was struck again in the Sermon on the Mount, and it would be hard to argue that that's not the best part of the Gospel of Matthew. I was struck by how often the words do or do not begin the text. Mm -hmm. It, It is, I think, in some ways that simple for Matthew. Do this, do not do this. If you follow Jesus, do love your enemies, do not be a hypocrite do not live as the pagans do, do not worry, do forgive. And one of the curses and blessings of the Gospel of Matthew is to simplify that language for us right. because there's no ambiguity in it. There's, mm-hmm. 
there's no there's no loopholes. If you follow Jesus, there are some do's and there are some do nots. And for Matthew, it seems almost that easy, or at least that simple. We know it's not easy. Where are you building your house? On sand or on the rock? Sure. Right? Are you wheat or are you chaff? Are you sheep or are you goat? Yes. There are often times in which it's either or for Matthew. And part of that's the the material, chapters 5, 6, and 7, which again is maybe the best part or certainly the best known part of the Gospel of Matthew. But it just, I was just struck that it seemed like almost every paragraph was encountering those words, do, do not, do, do not. And it's pretty clear. Not a lot of interpretation. Right, right, right. I, I did come with a question for you, Clint, because we see often in Matthew the kingdom of God being lifted up. And there's a particular connection and meaning of that when this book is written to people for whom the kingdom is not looking very good, right? At least the kingdom that they were expecting. Um, they don't have, the, the kingdom has been destroyed, it's been dismantled. They're under the reign of another kingdom. What, what is sort of your, what, what did you take in this reading as it relates to the kingdom of God and what Jesus means by that? Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, Michael. I, I think Matthew generally uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. He does, yeah. But it's interchangeable. Um, within the Gospels, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God mean the same thing to Jesus. And I would argue that they mean the reality of a God-centered, a Christ-centered life. And, and I do think Christianity in particular revolutionizes that concept of what it means to live in, quote, the kingdom, because it by and large detaches that from earth. In other words, that becomes a matter not of your skin color or your place of birth or your political affiliation or your ethnic background, but of your heart, of your spiritual choices. And to be a member of the kingdom is to be a follower of Christ. And it's a kingdom that's beyond the kingdom of the world. It's a it's often called, in fact, we see it in Matthew, it's often called the upside-down kingdom. Who's blessed in the kingdom? The poor, the meek, the gentle, the peacemaker. Those are not the people the world celebrates, but those are the people celebrated in the gospel, in the in the good news of Jesus Christ. Those are the people getting it right. Those are the people elevated and lifted up. And they belong to a different set of standards, different rules, different practices. They live in a different kingdom because they have a different king. And you cannot understand the Gospels apart from those, from that concept. And and any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I, I would argue in some way you can't understand the New Testament without that understanding or some theology of what it means to live in the kingdom as opposed to the world. And and that would have to be challenging to a people who believe themselves to be the rightful inheritors of the kingdom of God. The upside down kingdom isn't good news when you thought that you were at the top of the kingdom chart. And I wonder because of, you know, our history and our, our long Uh, traditions of faith, 
if that critique also lives now in this side of history for Christians, because we are the standard bearers of this kingdom, we often need reminded that it's an upside down kingdom too. It's not just the kingdom that was given to those who believe in Jesus, that that, that is intended to be for the people who by definition aren't in the circle today. Is that fair? I think so. I, I think fundamentally the the challenge there is how do we lower ourselves in Christ, not elevate ourselves in Christ. In other words, rather than the idea that there's some ladder we're trying to climb, Jesus calls us to humility, which embraces the least of our brothers and sisters. We're not there yet in that reading. You're going to see that in the 25th chapter of Matthew. I also think, to your point, Michael, um, that some of that tension is in the Gospel of Matthew because it's written to people who believed by their label they had a special place. They were God's people. They were Jews. And the Gospel of Matthew is not exempt from that. I don't know if you noticed, but when Jesus sent the disciples out, he told them, don't go to Gentile villages and don't talk to Samaritans. Later on, he'll confront a non-Jewish woman about not healing her child because she's not one of the children of Israel. And she gives an outstanding answer and Jesus praises her. But Matthew does embody some of that tension. Again, partly that's a concession, I think, to who Matthew's writing to. And also, I think, perhaps when he's writing, as I'm not sure that the push to include Gentiles has either happened yet or more likely has not been accepted yet by the community that Matthew's writing to. But, But those are guesses. I also think we see that, Michael, in the disciples themselves, not men of learning, not men of education, not rabbis, not successful, a tax collector who is by definition a hated outsider, given credit for writing the very gospel that tells the story, fishermen who are considered pretty low on the social ladder. Jesus surrounds himself even with people who bear out this idea of the exact opposite of prestige and accomplishment and notoriety. And it's always, I think, been fascinating that these are the people Jesus tags with the mission to spread the word because they're not well-suited for it. Yeah, this is potentially framed differently in Luke. But in Matthew, there is very much an awareness that the people who Jesus chooses to be his witnesses, though witnesses is more the language of John, but the people who, those who are the followers of Jesus, they are not the first pick. They're, they're not the first pick on the team if you were going to be picking your team because they don't have the religious language. And in fact, the people that do, Jesus is most often critiquing. These men are not the ones who you would pick in the higher social order where they would have social capital or where they would have audiences in places of power. So when Jesus chooses these, 
there's almost this image of I, I'm going to climb the mountain so that you don't have to. I, I, that Jesus is greater, so you don't need to be greater. That that the upside down kingdom has place for everyone because the one who's at the top of the kingdom is great enough for everyone. Is that fair? I think I think so. I, I think it would be very much Matthew to say that in Jesus, the high are brought low and the low are lifted up. That, that's not a quote, but the least will be great. The great will be least. The first will be last. The last will be first. But there is very much that idea of a reversal. And I think we see it even in the people who follow Jesus. Well, and and the people Jesus fellowshiped with. The criticism leveled against him is he eats with the wrong people. Right. If he was really the Messiah, he wouldn't be in relationship with those sinners. And Jesus said, no, you don't understand. That, those are the people who need hope. Those are the people who need the gospel, the good news. Clint, as this conversation goes on, the word that is sort of starting to tie this stuff together for me is humility, which is an odd word maybe to choose. But humility in the sense that if we are willing to look beyond the, the things that we have imagined Jesus to be and let Jesus be Jesus with his very challenging statements and also his very affirming, his very protecting statements, if we, if we let both of those live and we're willing to say that Jesus is always and constantly inviting me to be faithful in secret or, or within myself I, I, in the deepest part of who I am. And that doesn't need to be something that other people see. All of that is connected with that idea of humility. If, if we are humble enough to follow Jesus, to be his disciples, it doesn't need to be about us. It doesn't need to be about the rules we've assumed. And it can be about the one who came to fulfill all of those things. Yeah, there's tremendous freedom in that. We follow Jesus and give up our status, or at least we attempt to. And I think Matthew perhaps makes this most obvious. All the Gospels, in some sense, do this as they present Christ to us, but maybe Matthew does it the best. It seems to me that Matthew's Jesus is impossible to put in a box. There are times he's harsh. There are times he says things that are very hard that we don't want to listen to. There are other times he's very gracious. He, Matthew gives us this picture that simply refuses to be hemmed in as any one thing. And while Matthew might make us uncomfortable more often in doing so, I think that's a great service for us and a good place to start in the Jesus story. And one of the other wonderful reasons that Matthew is the first gospel, because he makes it perhaps most difficult to get overly comfortable with Jesus. That comment really does frame for me. We should talk a little bit about why Matthew does sit at the bridge. And, you know, some of that idea being that you have a huge gap between the writings of the 
end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, Matthew does provide the first word of Jesus. It, it's, the, it's the first inbreaking of God after hundreds of years of silence, at least as the scriptures are dated. Yeah, and he begins with the story of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. So in his first words, the first things he says about Jesus connect Jesus with the past, with the old story, with the unfolding covenant in a new way. And in that sense, Matthew almost has to be the first gospel. I mean, no other writer bridges that gap better than Matthew, both with the genealogy, but even with his Christmas story, his his birth narratives, there are all these wonderful nods to the prophets of the past, the names of the past, the name Jesus itself is the name Joshua. He will be called Emmanuel, which is a Hebrew word. But there's just all of these, all of these nods. I think where Matthew says, yes. I know the old story. Let me tell you the conclusion of it. Let me tell you the next part of it. And and that's the perfect way to open the New Testament, I think. And not only is that the perfect way to open it, we're not going to read it this week, so we, we better not talk about it. But there really isn't a gospel that ends with the kind of strong statement that Matthew will end with in terms of empowering an understanding of what the church exists to do. There's not many gospel snippets that are most used as mission statement of the church as the end of Matthew. And so as as we're going to get there, it's worth saying if you find this book challenging like I have so often, that it is all building somewhere and and it is not just intended to be a history book. We're supposed to see ourselves in the middle of this story. No question. Well, Matthew very much likes to bookend things. And without getting too far ahead of ourselves, let me just point out that that he begins with, this is the gospel, which we translate good news. But in Greek, that's the word evangelism, euangelion. It's the word from which we get evangelism. So this is the evangelistic, the outgoing message of Jesus Christ. And then at the end of the gospel, there is this wonderful bookmark. Now get out there with it. And and we'll talk, we, we can certainly circle back to that next week. But it, it, it's no coincidence that Matthew starts and ends with the idea of sharing good news, first by himself as an author, and then by all Christians as the church. Hey, we want to thank you for listening. We hope there's something in here that might be helpful. Uh, Let us know if you have questions. I would uh, really encourage you, check out the website, uh, especially this online discussion that we're having. It's a great place to submit questions, thoughts, ideas. Uh, Undoubtedly, you've seen stuff in the text that we missed and have other questions, other thoughts. Maybe it spoke to you in a way that that we didn't have time to get to, and we'd love to hear that stuff. So uh, let us know what you think. Let us know what how we can help. And thanks for doing this with us. Make sure to tune back in. This podcast will release every Saturday for the week ahead reading. So that being said, see you next Saturday.